cancer's back. That was hard. Like I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of dying, but it crushed me to realize that I had nothing to leave my kids. Mm. And, and so that I think to your point was, it, it was a double-edged sword. It was the push I needed to, to really keep going. But on the other side, you know, the cancer wasn't the real challenge. The challenge was the cancer bills. It was kicking my butt and yeah. I was just sick and tired. And I was I, like the visual in my mind was just tripping over the roots, right? Like just small things, just not being able to get ahead. And so I kept the fire. I kept putting up so specifically around, around this job search. And I was in a session or venting, whatever you want to call it with him specifically about, you know, this situation, not getting any callbacks. And he said, bro, if you're not getting callback, there's something wrong with your resume. And that was my first aha moment. Welcome to the data career podcast, the podcast that helps aspiring data professionals land their next data job. Here's your host, Avery Smith. Hey everyone. And welcome back to another episode of the data career podcast. I'm your host, Avery Smith. And I'm so glad you're here because this episode is one of my favorite episodes that I've ever recorded for the Data Career Podcast. And I think it's going to be very applicable to you. It's all about the job hunt and how to actually land your first job. In fact, that is the title is the fastest way to actually get hired as a data analyst with no work experience. And this title is probably very applicable to many of you career changers. And it's super applicable episode. In fact, I actually gave early access to this episode to some of my students inside of my bootcamp, the Data Analytics Accelerator. And I gave it to them and they listened right away. And this is what they had to say. They said, thanks so much for giving us an early release of the podcast. This episode really resonated with me and has given me back energy that I lacked for a while now. I'm going to watch it again and take even more notes. So this episode's really good. And I think you're going to resonate a lot with it. It's with my friend who was a stranger. His name is Ro Lal. And I actually met him at a conference that we were both speaking at in Utah. It's like a big data tech conference and we were both speaking. I actually first noticed him from one of the other speakers sessions that we both attended and his comments were just really insightful. Like his questions, I was like, oh, that guy's kind of smart. And then I think he came to my session and I saw him there. And then I actually went to this session that, that was, his session was actually called the fastest way to actually get hired as a data scientist with no work experience. I was just like blown away listening to his presentation because it was so applicable to what we talk about in the Data Career Podcast, in the Data Analytics Accelerator, and my whole SBN method. Rose story really follows the SBN method, and I think you guys are going to really like it. I'm really excited for you guys to listen. Like I, I'm really pumped up about it, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you have any questions, let me know. And I challenge you guys, if you haven't checked out the show notes before, the description to go down to take a look. We have free resources, we have awesome trainings, we have stuff that you can join and just free ways to get started and get help on your data journey. So uh, I'll see you guys down there and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome Ro, excited to have you on the podcast. Likewise. For those of you guys who don't know, which is all of you guys, I actually heard Ro give a very similar talk to what we're gonna be talking about today at a conference called the Big Mountain Data Conference, Data and Developer Conference, which is held every every year in Salt Lake City. Shout out to Pat Wright, who puts it on. It's okay. awesome. Pat is awesome. Shout out, Pat. Uh, I was speaking there and Ro was speaking there and I went to Ro's talk and I sat through this whole thing 
And I was like, I love this because one of the things that I talk about in the podcast is I have this method that we'll get into a little bit today called the SBN method. And it's basically like, this is how you land a data job. You have to have skills, the S, that's only a third of the equation. Right. You have to have a portfolio and you have to have a network. And your, your message really resonated was like, oh man, this is actually really applicable to so many people. And so anyways, I'm really excited to have you here and to tell your story and kind of share some of your thoughts. I agree. I, I looked up SPN method after I met you that day. Oh, sweet. And yeah, no, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. And it's very, it's very close. It basically, and we'll obviously go into the details of this, but your story and your message is, Hey, it's not necessarily the skills that's holding you back from branding right. 100%. a job. But let's first talk about what you do right now. What's your current title? So I'm a senior analytics engineer at Purple. Okay. Purple, for those who Purple, don't know, the mattress company. is a mattress company with headquarters here in Utah. Headquarters in Utah. So we have a facility in Georgia uh -huh. as well as in Utah. We have a, a few facilities in Utah made in the USA, vertically integrated omni-channel distribution. You can buy it in a brick and mortar store. You can buy it online. Direct. And then we have our own stores. I think the Purple stores look like if, uh, I, if Apple sold mattresses, uh, it would look like a Purple store. Okay. Um, very cool. Very cool showroom locations. Okay. Very cool. And I guess what, for those who don't know, in one sentence, kind of explain what you do as an analytics engineer. Because that's a title that's really hot right now. It is. It is pretty hot. Not right very now. entry level, pretty no. new. So just like in one sentence, kind of explain. So my background and kind of what I wanted to get into originally was, you know, when I was cutting my teeth, data science was the way everyone's talking about AI right now. They talked about data science. Harvard came out with their data scientist is the sexiest job of the 21st century. They said that in 2013, they said it in 2017, they yeah. said it last year, right? It's this ongoing narrative of companies need people with data skills and data scientists is just a, they're analysts, there's engineers, there's analytics engineers, all of these roles kind of get called data scientists at some point or another. And basically the way I see analytics engineering is it's creating the inputs that a data scientist or another analyst would need to build insight at scale. It's I like it. A lot of analysts are used to getting their raw data, cleaning it. They say data science, 80% of data science is cleaning your data. Mm -hmm. And so that's true, not just at Burble, but at a lot of places. And what that means is if you have multiple people, there's multiple thoughts on how things should be modeled. And so analytics engineering helps to orchestrate that so it happens at scale. So you can get kind of a more done for your experience as an analyst. Yeah. And, and if I had to describe it, and I've never been an analytics engineer and it's really new, but from my, my experience, I'd almost say it's like, you do a lot of the data engineering work for data analysts. Like you're preparing a lot mm -hmm. of the pipelines, cleaning a lot of stuff so that the data analyst doesn't have to do it. And, but it's not quite data engineering because you're still involved in some of the insight generation yes. and modeling. And yes. Stuff like that. A lot of it is taking the raw data and combining it with assumptions yeah. and business expertise, right? Just a uh, context and marrying those two things together to get. Yeah. But you obviously did not start there. So what did you no. study in school? So I studied economics. Okay. And I wanted to be an economist because I didn't know what a data scientist was. Yeah. And it wasn't until after I graduated that I even heard the term, but when I heard it, I thought that's, that is what I want to do. I was doing, I was in a very niche role at that time. It was a kind of a hybrid between a data engineer 
and a financial analyst is basically if you were to do data engineering in Excel. Okay. I did. Yeah. And, and I had a lot of skill, right? I went with my econ degree, a lot of kind of econometric modeling there, Python skills, VBA. I automated a lot of my job oh, yeah. using code. And so I had, I had the right skill set to get a data analyst job, to get a more technical job, but it just, it was very difficult for me in the beginning. It was very hard. Yeah. So you felt like, and did you learn those skills on your own at school? Well, Global. the econ was through yeah. my degree, but all of the coding, I shouldn't say all of the coding. I took a couple of coding classes. Java was one. I can't remember what the other one was. Okay. But you had some, you had some coding skills. But it wasn't Python. Okay. And it wasn't SQL. Okay. And so, yeah. So I had, I had experience. Oh, VBA. I took a VBA class, at, but I knew VBA before I went to, I knew VBA prior to that class. Yeah. That's for, for those who don't know what VBA is, it's visual old. basic. It's old. It's visual basic for applications. It's basically like programming in Excel. Yes. More than formulas, but yeah, it's not very fun to deal with. And it's, I think it's kind of dying, especially now with now Excel. Now Python is in Excel. Yeah, yeah I think that's almost sure. Microsoft kind of admitting it, but we'll, we'll have to see. So you're in this situation where you're like, man, I want a data job. I have a lot of technical skills, but I, I'm not really getting any data jobs. So Correct. Uh, you were applying for jobs and I was. just getting rejections or? I wasn't even getting rejections. I was just getting, just, <laughs> I was crickets. I was Less getting crickets. Rejection. So traditional job search, applying online, uh, every night filling out applications, applying the, you know, common internet re wisdom, which is, you know, tailor your resume to the job description. And I was doing that dutifully night after night after night and nothing. And when I did, and when I did get a screen, I didn't go past, I didn't go past the screens. I was getting screened out pretty quick. And so I just kept doing that again and again and again, and was feeling very frustrated, especially hearing that Harvard was under the impression that businesses were struggling to find people with skills. And here I was like, I have the skills. Why am I not? Like some things, I'm obviously I'm doing something wrong, but mm. I could not figure out what it was. Yeah. It's like Groundhog Day where yes. you're putting in all this effort. Very much. Hoping yes. something's going to come from it and just, just cricket after cricket after cricket. Eventually you're like, man, I think really what most people feel is, man, I want to give up and I hate this. And I obviously stink and like something's wrong with me. And it's just like kind of a no-go, like you kind of just give up. I think that happens to a lot of people. Which to an extent that, so in 20, in my journal, it was 2016, I wrote, this is going to be my breakout year. And it was January, right? As people do with resolutions, I was recommitting to this job hunt. Like this was going to be my year. And early in the year, I was sitting outside my doctor's office. I called my wife on the phone and she's, telling me stuff that I don't remember specifically what, but as she, when she was wrapping up, she offhand said, how to go at the doctor. I said, the cancer's back. And I had, I was diagnosed with cancer two years prior. That was hard. I had a little baby, but that little baby was now three years old and he had a brother. And I had made my peace with mortality, with dying. Like I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of dying, but it crushed me to realize that I had nothing to leave my kids. Mm. And, and so that, I think to your point was, it, it was a double-edged sword. It was the push I needed to, to really 
keep going. But on the other side, you know, the cancer wasn't the real challenge. The challenge was the cancer bills. And it wasn't even, they weren't like we had insurance. They weren't that high. It was less than 10 grand, but it was kicking my butt. And I was just sick and tired of being (laughs) sick and tired. And I was like, the visual in my mind was just tripping over the roots, right? Just small things, just not being able to get ahead. And so I kept the fire. I kept putting up. So I have this really good friend, Dane. And at this point in time, he was actually my life coach. Oh, nice. So specifically around, around this job search. And I was in a session or venting, whatever you want to call it, with him specifically about, you know, this situation, not getting any callbacks. And he said, bro, if you're not getting callback, there's something wrong with your resume. And that was my first aha moment. Seems in, in retrospect, it seems really simple, but I remember sitting or not sitting, standing in my bedroom to this day when he said that, and just, it clicked in my mind. The purpose of my resume is to get callbacks. And if it, if I'm not getting callbacks, it's a problem with the resume. It's not a problem with anything else. The resume, it's not an index of your job history. It's not supposed to be a replacement for the interview. It's not supposed to sell them on on hiring you, it just gets callbacks. That's it. And so I started treating my resume like code. I broke it down into its functional components and I started testing each component to see if it was working and then iterating on the pieces that weren't working until the resume started generating callback. Yeah. And that's, that's so fascinating because I think you're right. I think a lot of people will think of the resume as this is a list of what I've done for work in my Mm -hmm. life plus school, I guess. But what you're saying is it's actually not just a list or it's not even a list. All it is, is is a device to get you interviews or screener calls actually. Right. It's a, I hand this to now a portal and basically it's supposed to go work for me and tell the recruiter or the hiring manager or the, whatever, the screener person, Hey, this person's interesting. Not this person's the right person to hire. Not that this is the person we want. It's just like, Hey. We should interview this person. Absolutely. And that's a mind switch, I think. That is. And especially people in the technical space are technical and we are very literal. And so that's difficult to to leave experience off your resume is almost blasphemy. (laughs) I could see that being really difficult. But yeah, and that's something I'm not saying to leave it off or leave it on. The, The epiphany was this idea of hacking the resume, hacking the interview process and iterating, try it out. Cause what works for me might not work for someone else. And so it is, there is a component that's just very specific to you. So I think the takeaway that's standing in plain sight, that's the secret is that iteration process and seeing what works for you. Yeah. And I, I think that's so interesting as well, because you said you treated your resume like code and you were basically debugging. I was debugging your, your resume. And I think one of the things that I think I can learn from that and and hopefully everyone listening is that means for those of you who maybe haven't programmed as much debugging basically means you're going through line by line, Mm -hmm. testing one little thing at a time, fixing one or not even fixing, you don't know what it is, making one change, hitting run again, does it work? No, make another little change, just one change at a time. And so I actually wanted to ask you on that, like, were you making like a change a day, a change a week? Cause that sounds like a lot of, A, a lot of work and it takes a lot of time to actually figure out what was working in my opinion. So 
It was, I'd probably say I was changing. So now I would say once a week, because most of the, of the recruiters and people who post jobs, they're human too. Yeah. And I notice it all hits on Monday. Yeah. And then some people kind of follow up Wednesday, Thursday, but then it hits again. There's another wave the following Monday. Mm. So I would just go with the flow. But in the beginning, right, if you really want to change quickly, it's not necessarily changes per week as changes per batch of resumes. So if I send, I send a resume out to, if, if I send out a batch of 20, I can see, you know, this went to this group and then I might, before I get responses back from that group, make a change, try with a new set and go that way. But yeah, the biggest, I would say the, the Pareto principle, the component that made the biggest difference was my job title. And it's just having the right job title, which I was, I had a very niche role that wasn't very Googleable. I mean, no one was looking for that. And so it was just, it was a non-starter. Yeah. So I tried a few different roles. I landed on business intelligence analyst for a reason you can go into if you want, but whether it's data analyst or data engineer or business intelligence analyst or marketing analyst, that matters. And when I made that change, it wasn't even overnight. It was, when did they respond? It was within hours. <laughs> yeah. I made the change at like 11 o'clock at night, went to bed, got a call first thing the next morning from Indeed. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, we saw your resume and uh, we wanted to bring you in for an interview. And I asked, what, what company? And they said, Indeed. Like, right. I heard you. What company is it for? No, us. Like Indeed wants to hire you. <laughs> that's so and I thought, oh, well, that's so, I mean, they saw in, they had an algorithm, right? They were screening. Yeah. They saw the name change and they're like, this is a business intelligence analyst. We want to interview them. Yeah. And I interviewed with Indeed and I did not get hired, which <laughs> takes it right. It's not just the resume. It's a whole, it's a process. So that, that piece was the cornerstone of what became it's sticking. So I think I'm going to stick with it. My hundred K offered ladder. Yeah. It's the first rung on that ladder. Yeah. And so I iterated at each, each rung of the ladder yeah. too. And indeed was one of the first places I did that. Yeah. And I, I want to definitely dive to that ladder, but I, I want to just really honestly dumb, dumb what you did down to like, you changed your title. I did. Like you gave yourself your own title. I did give myself my own title. And that's okay to do. So not at my current job. Okay. Like my title was my title uh -huh. at my job at the time. My boss, that boss, not my current boss. Yeah. Well, no, my current boss too. Leaders in industry, they hang out on LinkedIn. Yeah. And so if I had changed my title on my current job, that definitely would have raised the flag and it would, it would not have gone unnoticed. Interesting. Right. I, I think it, that depends on the company size. It does for sure. Yeah. In this case, it would not have gone unnoticed. It would have raised some question as to why I was changing, especially since that wasn't my title, right? Yeah. And, at the company. But what I did is I had a blog and that blog didn't have a lot of readers, but it was mine. And I created a LinkedIn page for it. And I gave myself, I was the business intelligence analyst at Assume Wisely. Yeah. Which and was your company. And I put that on my resume. Yes. It's, it's not even a five. It's just a self-proprietor. It's not yeah. organized. It's me, right? Yeah. It's you, but it's a blog that yeah. you can still visit, right? It it's exists. still up. And if you look at my resume, Assume Wisely is on there. Yeah. It's no longer the top listing, Yeah, but it is on there. I actually had, I was talking to a recruiter not that long ago and he did ask, he, he thought it was interesting that 
I had changed jobs, but my email was still the same email from my previous employer. Uh, and he was curious why I still had the same email from a previous employer. Yeah. And, and that goes to show, despite it being very prominently displayed on my LinkedIn page yeah. and on my resume and everywhere else, people don't read your resume. They no. skim it. And so- Or a computer not, does. It's, or a computer does. It's yeah. not obvious. And yeah. so I would say that question, what is Assume Wisely? Yeah. Tell me about your work at Assume Wisely. Yeah. And then spinning, if you will, that narrative. Yeah. So that you continue past the screen. Like I didn't lie to lie to anybody. I didn't yeah. misrepresent what I was doing. Yeah. I let them know it was a blog and it was a blog that served my creative ability to talk about data and my passions in the in the data space. But yeah, that was I absolutely gave myself a job. Yeah, which I think everyone can and honestly everyone can. And that's not the do. only way to do it. No. There's lots of ways you can do that. You could do that with, even with, I. one thing I'm really big on is the portfolio. Your portfolio could be a company if you want it to be. It could be, you're like, oh, maybe down the road, I want to get into consulting or like contract work or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be my proof. This is going to be my advertising. Right. So like you're, you're not maybe a full-fledged contractor or freelancer yet, but that's like the groundwork for it. Or you could do pro bono work for okay. friend companies or like a mom and pop restaurant or something like that. But like this whole narrative of like, you can actually create your own job where you hire yourself, you give yourself the title you actually want. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has to match the work you're doing, right? Because if I say I'm a doctor and I'm doing data analytics, like right. that's probably not going to go over very well. But That's very niche to this space and the data yeah. space can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as far as portfolio work goes, you can do... So I did machine learning on my resume. It had, I solved real business problems at work. Yeah. But that wasn't part of my job. That was a data yeah. on the side. I did that on my own time yeah. on the weekends. And yeah. then I presented it and it solved the problem. And I was trying to kind of get a promotion into something more technical. Yeah. It just wasn't there yeah. um, to be had. And so, which is why I was looking um, to find a position elsewhere. Yeah. The, the other thing I'll say with that is another previous podcast guest, I think episode 77, 78 is Luke Bruce. And he's actually been web scraping data jobs for about a year now. And so we were looking at the, the sub classification of he's been scraping Indeed and LinkedIn and like every job board out there for data analyst jobs. And really like he has a subset of the data where it's supposed to be the data analyst jobs, not the data scientists, not the data mm -hmm. engineer jobs. And I think we were looking at like 13,000 rows of collected jobs, there was like 789 different titles. I believe it. And that's the thing is like your company might give you a title that's like, for instance, when I, my first data title was junior chemometrician. Right. And it's like, there's not many hiring for that. But if I change that on my resume to data analyst, all of a sudden I have like way more people, yes. that, way yes. more jobs that I'm actually qualified for. I was the same person. Right. I had the same skills. But just changing it from data analyst to junior chemometrician like made all the difference. And so I think it's just really important that like, yes, you never want to upset your boss or put yourself in a compromising situation with your company, but data titles or just titles in general are kind of all made up at the end of the day. Like there's not like, there's like a perfect job description to each job title. And so if you have to make a little bit of a change or, or even if you don't want to make the change, hire yourself as that role, it's a big difference maker. And to your point, it is the culture of the, the company. I've yeah. been at companies where that was very much something you could do. No one was going to care. And I've actually, I've had the opportunity to coach, mentor other people, and they've had no problem yeah. just switching it out. 
Yeah. Because they had a good relationship with their manager, supervisor, whoever. They were like, yeah, sure. We know that this is a stepping stone to do other things. And and they were very supportive. Yeah. So it is job dependent and never put yourself in a situation where for sure you'd be in a bad situation. Okay. Sorry. So I kind of distracted from the hiring ladder. So the first thing is, like you said, like making sure your resume is actually getting you screeners. Right. What's the next step? So the next step is the screen. <laughs> and so screening. So there's two ways to think about it. I think the more sticky way to think about it is a, with the problem focus. Like I'm not getting this. Where's the problem? So if you're not getting callbacks, it's the resume. That's your step one. If you're not getting past the screen, that's a skill problem because the HR person doesn't have the technical ability to assess whether you have the skills or not. They just don't. And so they rely a lot on their interpersonal skills to sense your level of confidence. And you could absolutely lie your way through a screen and get to the next step. And the hiring manager is not going to be fooled, but most that initial person they just don't, unless they've coached themselves, which my experiences most haven't. Most are expecting you to be honest and trustworthy. And so if they hear confidence in your voice that you know what you're talking about, you're going to get past the screen. Yeah. And I wasn't getting past screens mm -hmm. because I didn't have that confidence. And it took, it took some iteration and it took some practice to be able to, to get to the point where I could communicate confidently that I knew what I was talking about. That's really interesting because I just realized this and don't do this, anyone listening. But basically what you've told me so far is you can get past the first two letters totally playing a con man. You could. You, you could make up your whole resume. You could. You could if you just can talk confidently with some SQL stuff or whatever. But really what happens next in the next round is you'll get, Found out. You'll get caught for sure. But the first two rounds really says not a whole lot about your skill set. It's just like how you're presenting yourself. Like you said, you had the skills, but maybe you weren't presenting them confidently. Right. And so for me, the reality was it took me a while to get to that point. But when I did get finally past that point, the feedback, and, and I've been, I've been on both sides of the hiring interview. I've gone through, there's a lot of risk that companies assume when they interview and they need to be very careful about how they go about approaching, approaching that process. So that it limits any kind of liability and exposure on their part. Some companies have a very scripted process where they can only ask the questions that are laid out by mm -hmm. approval from HR and the legal department, right? It's dangerous for them to give you feedback. It is. It is. It's risky for a company. If a company gives you feedback, they have done it at their own risk. Yeah. But with that 10 times out of 10, the feedback that I got was you're great. We went with someone with a little bit more experience, which mm -hmm. I realized was giving feedback without actually giving feedback. Mm -hmm. And with, you know, I had really strong imposter syndrome. I remember I keep a journal. There's a line in my journal where I wrote, I'm going to squeak by whoever hires me is going out on a limb, taking a risk on me. And the other thing I wrote is this question that just, it kept coming back to the same question. What knowledge and skill am I missing that makes other candidates more attractive? Mm. And so both of those fed into very strong sense of imposter syndrome and this need to go out and learn. And I would go get that feedback. They would confirm my bias. And what would I do? I would go and learn more. And I think, I mean, I don't know other people, I'm guessing other people who are analysts in this space, they're kind of that technical accountant type of, I guess, act like mentally rigorous person. I get a dopamine hit from, from learning. I really enjoy learning. Yeah. And so 
it kind of pushed me into, okay, well, I'm uncomfortable here. I'm going to go do something that I do feel really comfortable. I'm really comfortable learning, completing a course, checking the box, feeling like I'm making progress. Yeah. And then I would come back to it. Yeah. And then it was just this kind of, it's funny to talk about learning as a negative feedback. Yeah. But when you're not getting results. No. And it's become, it's a form of analysis paralysis. It's a different variation on it. That was kind of the hamster wheel I was in. Yeah, no, it's a really good point that like when, when you're in that situation, for example, when you're applying every single night, you're not getting callbacks, you're not even getting rejections. You're like, crap, I must suck. In order mm-hmm. to not suck, I must learn. Right. But really, once you get to a certain level of learning, your learning no longer is the barrier holding you back from the job. It's how you're presenting yourself. And the thing is, once you get coming back to the ladder, once you're getting past the screen, you've checked the skill box. Yeah. Assuming you're not just lying through your teeth. Yeah. yeah. If you're lying like that at that point, like then it's, we're having a nonsense conversation. Yeah. But assuming barring, barring you're misrepresenting um, yourself, if, and yes, part of the screen is a technical interview. So more often, usually by the time you're talking to an actual hiring manager, you've, they've seen your resume. The manager has, at this point, you're past the automated tracking system. He's skimmed your resume or she, she skimmed your resume. Someone in HR has gone through like a set of check boxes. Does this person check our boxes? Are they a good fit from our rubric, whatever it is they use in HR? You've gone through a couple of technical screens. They know they can tell from your resume that you're not a seasoned analyst with 10 years of experience. They can guess that your SQL is green. And if they can't guess it, they, they're going to see it in the SQL that you send them. You're not, fool, like you're not fooling anyone. They know that. And now they're calling you up on the phone saying, yeah, we want to talk to you. Yeah. At that point, you have enough skill to do the job. Yeah. Because if you didn't, why would they bother? Why would they? And that took, I feel a little dumb, right? Like it sounds super obvious, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that, there's just this huge just relief. Yeah that I felt. And it gave me a huge amount of confidence to say, yeah, they just didn't like me. Yeah. And that's okay. Cause I didn't like some of them. Yeah. And it's okay to not like people. Yeah. Like now we're getting into like cancel called like dangerous territory. I guess I should say I'm okay with people not liking me. Mm-hmm. I can live with that. If you right, And that, and that brings me to that next rung to kind of like the next epiphany, which we skipped the story, but the punchline was, There's only two questions that they're asking that matter. And it is, can you solve my problem? Do I want to work with you? And if they're bringing you into the interview, the answer to the first question is probably yes, but you need to be aware enough to articulate what that looks like. Yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, those are the only two questions that matter when you're getting hired is do do they like working with you? And do they think that you can do the job that they're asking you to do? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really it. There's kind of two factors to answer that question is one, are you a good person? And do you have the, the skills to do it? And two, are you portraying that with everything that you're doing? Because I've met people who are better at SQL than me and they can't land their first data job. They're better at SQL than me because they've spent a lot of time learning it. Like they just drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it. But the thing that like, I think I did well was I was able to show people, here's my SQL portfolio. Here's my SQL skills. Here's my skills. It's not that my skill is better than anyone else's necessarily. Right. Because that's only one part of it. The that other part of dimension. it, you have to portray it one way or another. And so like you said, it took you a while to figure out, oh my gosh, 
I'm actually smart. I actually can do this. Like they're not just rejecting me because I'm dumb. It's because maybe they like this other person or maybe they wanted to work with someone from this area. Like there's so many reasons and they're never going to tell you for liability no. reasons. Right. And so it's like, you have to become confident in your skills enough to the point where it's like, oh, I feel confident in my skills and they can reject me for whatever reason they want, but I'm going to have more opportunities in the future. So it's funny you say that. So what happened for me so now I'll come back and tell the story. I was networked. So I was doing everything. I was doing, I was going to meetups. The data science competition I won was actually oh, that's right. with the Big Mountain Data and Dev Conference. Oh, nice. They sponsor a competition. They haven't recently, but they used to every oh, year. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it was that conference okay. that my team won. I was networking on LinkedIn, right? I was doing these things. And so through that, one of my friends, I won't say the name of the company because they're big enough and I don't want to get them in trouble because they're super nice. My friend lets me know, hey, there's an opening on his team and they are just slammed with work. Huge, huge amount of work and they just need people to churn through a lot of SQL. And I was, and I was thinking that sounds great for me. Mm -hmm. I would love to do that. Went through the skill assessment, went through everything. They flew me down. This is pre COVID for the final interview. And I still have, I'd learned how to, what's it called? It's not going to matter now. I had in my journal bubble charts, dot plot charts, where mm -hmm. you like take notes with, it's like a word map. There's like a fancy word. Anyway, I had this very colorful two page, it was like four pages of funnels and notes and just a whole, all of my analysis and everything I'd learned about this company uh -huh. in full color. And I had it on the table and I wasn't shy about letting him see that I'd done uh -huh. a lot of preparation. I was taking this job very seriously uh -huh. and I was very excited to do this job. And I was shocked when the answer came, thanks, but no thanks. And I reached out to my friend, they're like, what happened? And he said, my boss said, I don't know what happened. He wasn't the same guy that I talked to on the phone. And so after I, you know, threw my pity party and I was thinking about that, what I realized is what I really emphasized in person that I didn't previously during the interview was I was humble and willing to like, he was going to be my mentor. I was humble and I was going to be just a great student till he could mold me. However, however he saw fit. And clearly he didn't want to be a mentor. Mm. And I realized he, he didn't want to be a mentor. He wanted results. He mm. had a problem. He needed a solution for his problem. He didn't need to be the solution mm. to my problem. Yeah. And so that is. Was there, I don't know how many epiphanies we've had. I think that's the second, that's still part of the second one. Okay. The two question, right? That experience is what led to the two questions that matter framework mm. is I realized it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter what they ask, whether they're consciously thinking of it or not, they have a problem and they want it solved. Mm. Most, every manager I've ever met is overwhelmed with work and they would love to have people come in and take stuff off their plate. Yeah. And I've yet to meet a manager who's not responsive and receptive to that approach that I can take stuff off your plate. That's awesome. So just making it really clear, hey, I can take stuff off your plate and I'm not going to be a burden. I'm going to be an asset. I'm not going to be a burden because I think that is the stereotypical view of an entry level candidate is this has now become another thing to do. I have to mentor and coach this yeah. person. I already have enough stuff to do. So how'd you overcome that? By answering those two questions. So that's where your technical skills matter, right? There's a hygiene factor. We touched on SQL. So SQL, there's a hygiene factor in a lot of roles. If you don't know SQL, it's kind of a, they can like you 
a lot, but if you don't know SQL, they can't hire you. Yeah. Right. It's just, it's a hygiene factor. It's mm -hmm. table stakes. Besides that, there's a lot of skills that, so if you have project management skills, I'm a big fan of what's the name of that book. Is it extreme? Extreme ownership. I literally started today. Oh, did you? Yeah. Cause I, I heard Jocko speak at a conference I went to in September. Jocko's great to yeah. listen to. So yeah, I just extreme ownership. Yeah. I just, I feel more manly listening. Oh to yeah. Jocko. They talk so manly. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't. I wonder how well he would do with, with the gnarly spreadsheet. Like I, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen grown men just cower in front of a really gnarly spreadsheet. Yeah. And so that's my thing. Yeah. That's your manly. Power. That's my, that's my manly, yeah. manly superpower is gnarly spreadsheets and code. Mm -hmm. I've been talking about ownership a ton um, at purple and my boss is reading that book right oh, now. Nice. Yeah. That's in part where that comes from that to question. I can take things off your plate. It's ownership. It's saying, you know, you don't have to own this. I will own this. You don't have to worry about it. I will worry about it. That is extreme ownership. And if you approach a role with that, I think a lot of people will overlook like, because you, if I don't know how to do something, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And, and if, that's an acceptable answer in an interview. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but come back to me in three hours and I will know the answer to that. Or I will be able to articulate a very specific set of questions. Uh, yeah, that you'd ask to, to figure it out. I thought I had an experience a few jobs ago. I was in a role and so this was during COVID. And so one of our developers was remote and the day I met him, he'd been working there way before I did. This is the first time I'd, was, I'd been there a few months, first time I met him. And we were talking and he said, you know, I really wish I, I love the job, the, the team dynamics great. I just wish, I won't say his name, but our manager would, men, would be more of a mentor. And I thought that's funny because I get really great mentorship from him. Mm. Because when I have a question, I show up for work and I'm in his office at nine o'clock, mm. the days that I know he's gonna be in the office and I ask him my questions. Mm. And he knows that I'm gonna do that if I have questions. And I already knew, what he was going, like he had a very set process to debug mm. my questions. After one or two iterations of that, I figured it out and I stopped. I made sure to go through that process beforehand to catch things. And so I got great mentorship doing that. And it was all about how you approached it, not necessarily setting, because I owned my mentorship. I yeah. didn't put it on him to be my mentor and it worked out great. That's, that's incredible. That's so cool. You're making sure you answer those questions. how did you end up getting hired? How did I end up getting hired? So I was interviewing a ton and I was networking and other people that I kind of worked with, right. were moving on to, to different, different positions. And one of them, actually not one, several of them became directors in the, of departments. And in the beginning, when I was networking, I would just reach out to them and say, Hey, can we talk? And it was awkward, but they were my friends. So they, you know, endured and were good sports about it. One of them had a need and he saw that I'd be a good fit for that, for that role. So he had a list of one to hire me and then it didn't, the, the rec didn't get approved. And so I didn't get the job that was in the fall of 2019. I want to say somewhere around there anyway. Um, it didn't get approved. And then the reporting, there was like a significant problem with their reporting. And so the need for that role materialized again, and he got the rec approved and I got a call. Ironically, I got a call the day I went on vacation. 
So I was going, it was a Friday, I was going on vacation and they called me up like at three in the afternoon to say, Hey, can you come in for an interview? But it was, it was an offer. Oh, those are the best interviews, right? Like they'd already interviewed. Me. <laughs> I, I've had one of those before. Those are the best. And so I didn't know, like I was, I just put in vacation time because I needed to, right. It was either use it or lose it. So I was putting in some vacation time and I was taking a week and I was gearing up to, to leave. And then actually, did I even leave? No, because we were in, this was during COVID. So I was in my house. We were remote. I didn't go anywhere. I was like, I don't remember being in the office. That's I wasn't. Funny. I was in my house. And I remember getting off the phone going, oh, this is going to be dramatic. Oh, yeah. It was pretty dramatic. I sent my, I sent my resignation letter that night, that Monday night. So it was like the first day of vacation. And I said, you know, I want to give my two weeks notice, but this is an unusual circumstance. I 100% will come back. I will start working tomorrow and actually work as opposed to take a week off and then just leave you in the lurch for a week. And it worked out. Everyone was a professional, but it was a little, it was a little dramatic. That's awesome. I mean, so. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it worked out and, and congrats. And the cool thing is once you get your foot in the door, it's way easier. The next job's a hundred times easier. Cause there's, there's just a lot of stuff that they don't teach in school. And it's not that they don't want to, there's a lot of nuance that comes with yeah. real world, gritty, yep. gnarly data that you just can't replicate in, in an academic setting. It's really, really hard. I'll challenge you on that just because I think Data Analytics Accelerator does, but not, but, <laughs> but I agree. I agree. Even our bootcamp, it's hard to replicate real world scenarios. It really is. It's super hard to replicate working with others in a school situation, like having teammates, mm -hmm. having a boss, communicating to them, like it's hard to replicate. And so you're always going to be learning stuff on the job, but even even going back to what we started with, with the first rung, all of a sudden you have a whole new row on your resume with a new job title, a new mm -hmm. data job title, a bunch of bullet points. And so it's just like getting that first, getting the yes. screeners becomes way easier. So really once you get back, like, honestly, your first few screens is like the hardest part of the whole data thing. And once you get past that, it's all it gets gradually and gradually more easily. And then to the point where you're at today, where I know like the, this job that you got, well, it wasn't necessarily easy to get, but like it wasn't as hard and as difficult as the very first data job that you got. Correct. And, the other, and it's, there's also something to be said about, I 100% felt because I knew my hiring manager, but I didn't know his boss. Yeah. And so I had to sell his boss and his boss's boss. Yep. That's the case, even when you, you know, even when I was at Purple and I had like roles under my belt, like yeah. I wasn't new when I joined Purple. I felt like, I still felt like an imposter. I felt like I'd like hoodwinked them. Yeah. I wasn't lying, but I felt that way. Yeah. It's a very real feeling. And it stems from being that kind of, if you're familiar with disk profiling, it's that C type analytical mindset is that constant nagging that you just don't know enough is what drives you to be that detail-oriented learner personality. And so, yeah, it's a constant struggle. Here's the untold truth, I think, for all data professionals that we're, I think we're all collectively keeping it. Maybe we're shouting it too. I don't know, maybe it's not a secret, but we're all just kind of winging it as we go. Like every step in the journey, there's new things to learn. There's new mm -hmm. things coming out every, literally with AI right now, it feels like every day. And it's like, there's no one on this planet earth who's a hundred percent qualified for all of the data things that we're possibly tackling. So it's no, like, it's true. Like we're all getting better 1% every day. Like, and we'll never be perfect. You'll never be in a situation where you probably feel hundred percent comfortable doing the data analytics you're doing, 
And if you are, you probably are bored. So that's like, I think that could be a whole other conversation. Yeah. Now my analytics engineer brain wants to like, that's, that's a rabbit hole. We could have a whole episode two. About episode two. Episode two. About we'll do it. Analytics engineering and the state of data modeling. Yeah. Which I think would be a good conversation because someone who's new, if you understand kind of the drama in the data space between kind of analytics engineering versus traditional data engineering, that sparked some heat on my LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. People get very emotional about that. And Joe Reese, do you know Joe? Yep. Mm -hmm. Joe's very vocal about kind of this, yes, the data community is winging it and it's time to stop. <laughs> like we need to start acting like professionals. I might be putting words in his mouth, but I think those are the words that that rings true to what he would say. I think we're moving in that direction, but there is absolutely a space for someone who is green, but has an understanding of where we're going and kind of where the space is. They would outperform someone who, you know, has been coding for a few years. Yeah. Who doesn't have that awareness. Yeah. That's the exciting part is it's, mm -hmm. there is opportunities to, even if you're fresh to. There is, there is. Do anything really. You just have to be in the right situation, have the, the right skills, the right confidence in your skills the right way of talking about your skills, the right way of presenting your skills and, and just feel like, here's what I can do for you. Here's the proof I can do it. When you, is there a fit? Yeah. Is there a fit? And it's yes, okay no. that there isn't. Yeah. It's okay that there isn't. Yeah. All right. I love it. The offer is a good thing. You got to get paid. There's tips. So negotiating your job title is a big one. Yeah. That's the that's last, a good problem. that's the that's last wrong in the ladder. And for most problem. of our listeners, they're mostly struggling on the earlier stuff. So I would argue for most of your listeners, the answer is to just say, yes, thank you. That's how you yeah. negotiate the offer. Yeah. Just get that first roll. Yeah. And then the second then one, on. we can, we can yeah. get a little fancy. And we can swing for the fence. I've never negotiated a salary once. Well, I kind of, but that's, that's the story. Anyways, I appreciate you coming on. And I think, uh, yeah, I think all of our listeners are going to have a lot of good value from you and thinking about, by the way, the title for this is the fastest way to actually get hired as a data analyst with no work experience. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. If you did make sure that you click in the description down below to get all of Rose awesome links. We'll have his link to his website, LinkedIn and stuff like that. And we'll look forward to part two. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks. Well, how about that guys? I told you it's a good episode. Was I wrong? Was I wrong? I think you guys really enjoyed that. I appreciate Ro coming on so much and sharing his story, being super vulnerable. I was actually talking to my editor and I was like, Hey, uh, we're getting some good feedback for this episode. And one of the things he said that I think was really true, he said, Roe went deep and real with his own experience. And I think, I think he did. So I hope you guys got the takeaway that, hey, skills don't matter as much as you think. Resume matters. That's part of the end part of the SBN method. Your network matters. Your portfolio matters. And uh, if you keep getting rejections, you can't go back to just defaulting to learning more skills because it's probably not the skills that are holding you back. Anyways, I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, why not leave a rating and review? We have that new bonus in the show notes down below. If you leave a rating and review, you get a free Data Career Podcast episode navigator. It's basically like a cool document that shows you some of our top episodes by theme. So all you gotta do is fill out the form. It's absolutely free. Leave us a rating review. Boom. Why not, right? And why not recommend to a friend? continuing to grow the show. One thing that's hard about podcasting is there's no like algorithm really, right? Like on YouTube or like TikTok, there's like an algorithm. Podcasting doesn't really have the algorithm. So we really rely on people like you 
telling other people. So share on LinkedIn, share with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. And it helps us grow the show and helps me stay motivated to keep delivering free content like this from Row, which I think is absolutely world-class. So thanks you guys for listening and I'll see you guys in a few episodes.